यू आर लिस्निंग टू अमिंट प्रोडक्शन प्रॉट यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट द मार्च ऑफ नाइनटीन नाइनटी वन वॉज अ टर्निंग पॉइंट The Chandrasekhar government presented an interim budget on the 4th of March. Finance Minister Yashwant Sinha spoke in the budget speech of a fragile economic situation and a macroeconomic crisis, but could not take corrective steps required because the government was politically too weak. By May 1991, international rating agencies had downgraded India to below investment grade. India was on the brink of default on its international obligations, something that had never happened before. Mr Sinha authorized the State Bank of India to sell 20 tons of coal from the government of india's stock to the union bank of switzerland he also authorized negotiations for pledging 47 tons of coal from the reserves as collateral for a loan of 600 million dollars from the bank of japan and the bank of england they insisted that the gold should be physically shipped to their vaults in london on 21st june 1991 a new government headed by pv narasimharao was sworn in It brought the crisis under control and reversed the economic policies of interventionism India had stuck to in the first four decades post-independence. These decisions changed the Indian economy unimaginably. Welcome to India's Reform Story. I'm your host Pooja Mehra. I'm an independent journalist and podcaster, and the author of *The Lost Decade: 2008 to 18: How India's Growth Story Devolved into Growth Without a Story*. India's Reform Story is a seven-part podcast. In a series of seven conversations with economists, policymakers and commentators, I will unpack the story behind India's reforms and find out what went on behind the scenes and how successive prime ministers from Atal Bihari Vajpayee to Narendra Modi have taken these reforms forward. It's now nearly 3 decades since 1991. In these 30 years, India's global standing has changed. The economy has changed. Despite the evident success though large swaths of the economy are still largely unreformed the system still resists difficult reforms funnily the word reform has become cheap lowering of fdi caps back in the 1980s was presented as a reform 40 years later lowering of fdi caps is still presented as a great example of reforms state capital relations remain murky in many places the state's relationship with the population remains what it used to be that of a compensator for policy failures because so many people cannot access education skills and healthcare from the market they cannot improve their income earning abilities politicians compensate for the failure to reform and the failure to step in to provide healthcare education and skills by seeking to provide mnrega jobs cooking gas and other such schemes and they call them reforms i asked dr bibek debroy the senior most economist in government and chairman of prime minister narendra modi's economic advisory council about the modi government's reforms record i also asked dr debroy if there was an ideological or directional break in the economic policy thinking after 2014 the year mr modi joined office he rejected the idea completely and insisted instead that mr modi's government is in fact trying to complete the pending reforms agenda that dr singh could not take up after 1993 He even referred to a document prepared in the finance ministry when Dr Singh was finance minister as a possible guide map for Modi government's decisions. So let me start at the beginning and the beginning was 1991 and the general perception is that there were wonderful reforms in 1991. 
So let us ask ourselves, what were these wonderful reforms in 1991? With the exception of industrial delicensing, every reform identified with 1991 pertained to the external sector. There was nothing else that happened in 1991 other than the external sector and industrial delicensing. There is a constitution. There is a seven schedule in the constitution. There are items that are in the union list. There are items in the state list. There are items in the concurrent list. Most spending reform agendas pertain to the domestic economy. There was nothing that was directly done in 1991 that pertained to the domestic economy. The reason I'm stressing this point is domestic economic reforms are always more difficult. They are bound to be. 1991 was easier because it was purely union government. 1991 was easier because it was the external sector. In the year 1993, the Department of Economic Affairs brought out a discussion paper, which people have forgotten about. And this discussion paper was titled two years after the reform and the way forward. And when you look at that pending list of reforms articulated in 1993, you will find that it is those reforms in various ways that are now being implemented. Factor markets, which means labor markets. Labor market laws, we have not reached the terminal goal, but at least the large number of union government rules, acts have been unified under four codes. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying that one has reached the terminal goal. But one has begun to do things in terms of unification and standardization and harmonization of labor laws for which the first attempt was made in 1994. Exactly similarly, agricultural reform, I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts of the three farm acts, but this was a pending agenda since 1991. Puja mentioned China. In China, in the first flush of reforms, dated 78 or 79, it was the rural sector that was reformed first. Agricultural reforms came first. In countries that went through the Industrial Revolution, agriculture and land markets were freed up before the Industrial Revolution took place. So going back to factor markets, on land, we have still not achieved anything very significant, but land markets need to be reformed. We are gradually inching ahead. If one looks at reforms, and everyone has a prism about how I define reforms, in the financial sector, 
across governments, incrementally reforms have happened. We may like it, we may dislike it, we may say not enough has happened, but it is impossible to deny the fact that in the financial sector, incrementally since 1991, reforms have happened. If one looks at services, incrementally the reforms have happened. If one looks at taxes, different governments built on each other, on what the earlier government had accomplished. But so far as indirect tax reforms are concerned, with import duties first, then with VAT, and now with GST, no one is arguing that this is perfect, but at least the movement has been made. Direct tax reforms, there is still that, a lot that needs to be done, but again, incrementally, there has been chipping away. What would one identify the Bajpayee government with? And I repeat, many of the things are incremental. I think today, the Bajpayee government, after several years, would be identified most with telecom, the opening up of telecom, perhaps the opening up of the power sector, but most importantly, highways and roads and opening up of the services sector. In all of this, I can list out various things because I am the chairman of the Economic Advisory Council to the Prime Minister. I can list out 50 different reforms that this government has done. But the, in terms of the broad thrust, to me, one of the most important items is identification of people who are deprived. Decentralized identification, a national sample survey does not enable one to do that. That's just a survey. You need a census. The SECC, which is used for a whole variety of government programs, using deprivation criteria, was promised by earlier governments. But it's now been introduced by this government. By this government, I mean this government since 2014. Again, I'm not suggesting that everything is perfect with SECC. I'm just saying that economics have argued, I must have decentralized identification. I must do DPT transfers. I would identify the Modi government in terms of the broad trends with having done that identification with having pushed through DBTs, with having pushed through several physical and social infrastructure interventions in the rural sector, including transport connectivity that goes beyond the national highways. It's the first time capitals in the Northeast have airports. Is the first time all the states in the Northeast are talking about having railway connections. So, so far as this particular government is concerned in terms of the broad thrust, I would highlight the rural sector, the social sectors, the physical connectivity. So, let me pause here. May I ask a supplement question? Yes, of course. 
I get this, although I would say that connectivity uh, would also be incremental because there was the Prime Minister's uh, rural Gramin Sadak Yojana uh, started by the Vajpayee government and continued under Bharat Nirman with the UPA. We, we can assess who did good work and who stalled and who what speed it was, which government working on. But I, I want to take the conversation more towards you know, the trade policy of this government, for instance, uh, a lot of research work has been put out saying that it marks a reversal of a consensus that had guided Indian trade policy since the 1990s, including former vice chairman of the Niti Aayog, Professor Panagriya himself has been arguing this. So is ideologically there a break for reasons which are which we are seeing not only in India, India is not isolated, we are seeing elsewhere also a rise in protectionism, but the levels at which Indian protectionism is and global protectionism is in other countries, that's different. So, you know, so I want to ask if there is a break uh, because of ideological reasons in this long trend uh, that we saw, for instance, in trade policy. I am pointing out that this is a 30-year time span. What is the broad brush development. The broad brush development is pre-COVID when a lot of countries had embarked on growth. A lot of that impetus for that growth had come from exports or to be a bit more specific net exports. Pre-COVID, that engine of net exports had already begun to collapse. So two points I want to make. The first point I want to make is ever since GATT was set up in 1948, reciprocity has been built into trade negotiations. It may be an economist case that unilateral liberalization leads to welfare benefits. But in terms of trade negotiations, if I liberalize unilaterally, I lose a bargaining chip that I could have used to leverage market access in other countries. So reciprocity is an integral element. Now, so far as the non-WTO agreements are concerned, India still does not have trade agreements with India's major trading partners. On the face of it, we have a large number of agreements. But many of those are simply notional because they are not with major trading partners. When one goes into negotiations, since India's manufactured tariffs on an average are higher than whatever it is the tariff in the trading partner one is negotiating with, India will have to yield in terms of reducing manufacturing tariffs. But negotiations are a quid pro quo, I said reciprocity. So, when I reduce the manufacturing tariffs, what do I get in return? And typically at a broad brush level, what I get in return will be in the area of services. So the question to ask is, have I got enough in the area of services? And to the extent studies have been done of the barrage of trade agreements that were signed between 2004 and 2014, and there are several studies, they tend to show 
India gained precious little. The promised gain in services did not come, but the manufacturing study, but the manufacturing tariffs were reduced. If I now, and these are not studies done by government, these are studies done by independent research institutes. The second point I want to make is the world was one of protectionism, is one of protectionism, is one of trade frictions. If that is the case, the primary impetus for economic growth, the primary engine for economic growth will have to be consumption, investment and government expenditure, not net exports. Stating this is just a recognition of reality. Stating this is not protectionism. This is an obvious truism that net exports can no longer deliver the kind of growth that was delivered in East Asia when the external environment was much more benign. Now, since you are harping on the immediate, let me mention something. We have had a system of countervailing duty. Every country has it. No country says a countervailing duty is protectionist. Because a countervailing duty is imposed on imports and is meant to be equal to the indirect taxes that the domestic producer pays. It ensures a level playing field. It is anything but protectionist. Before GST was introduced, I did not really know that the true, the true extent of domestic indirect tax. I had no idea what they were because the thing was non-transparent. The chain was non-transparent. With GST for a certain product, I know that this is the indirect tax that the domestic producer pays. And I have now got a IGST that is equal to this. It so transpires that this IGST is lower than the countervailing duty that had existed earlier. I repeat, because this is so obvious, but people don't understand, that the new IGST is lower than the earlier countervailing duty. Obviously, therefore, what I am likely to do as a government is because the IGST has now been uniquely determined is to raise the basic customs duty to the extent of the countervailing duty, to the extent of that gap. When I'm raising that basic customs duty, I am not exceeding any of the bound tariffs. The bound tariffs are way above the applied rates. If I am doing this, I fail to understand how this is protectionism. I need to have an import duty structure where raw materials are taxed the lowest, intermediate somewhere in between, finished goods the highest. The trouble with doing this, of course, is because it becomes very difficult to determine what is a raw material, what is an intermediate and what is a finished good. And on, the top, on top of all this, I've got regional trade agreements which have messed everything up. So when I review these and I find there has been an inverted duty structure and for some item to ensure that that inversion does not exist, does not remain, I need to adjust tariffs. I wouldn't call that protectionism. I that would be my response. 
I understand your point. I just want you to also give me once again. You said it, but once again, uh, you know, a broad view of if so. If you're looking at from 1990s, you're saying that the present government's uh, economic policy is not a break. It is in fact doing what could not be done earlier because it was so difficult and tricky. Secondly, you're saying that it is a it is a misunderstanding to say that there is a break ideologically speaking. Uh, it is in fact not a break. It is a correction, like you just explained for uh, the case of tariffs. Is 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 that what you're saying? You see, look, what are reforms? Reforms are essentially about competition, choice, efficiency. Since 1991, we have not had any government that is against these principles of choice, competition, efficiency. This does not mean that hypothetically we cannot have a government in the future that is against these principles. I think the probability is exceedingly low, but hypothetically it's always possible. So today, across governments, we have that amount of consensus. Different governments, and when one says governments, one is talking about union government. Although one must remember that under the constitution, there are three other organs also. I mean, there are two other organs also. There's the executive, there's the legislature, and there's the judiciary. And many reforms that we desire require changes in laws. Now, I could have said, why didn't the Narasimha Rao government repeal the 1600 old laws, which this government has done in, in its first term? The issue is that whatever is the reform, so all governments have been agreed on that broad reform trust. However, within that, different governments have had different priorities on what needs to be done first, what needs to be done later in terms of the sequence. It would have been perfectly possible for the existing government to say that I will not touch a contentious area because preceding governments since 1991 did not touch them and will leave it to succeeding governments. So there's always a political economy of resistance. There is always the question of a political capital to be spent and every government decides what that is to be spent on. And uh, also, I wanted you to help me understand a statement that Nirmala Sitaraman, finance minister, made last year when she said that ideologically the government's economic policies are driven by empowerment versus you know, endowment. Doles. Is that a guiding principle for these decisions that you're talking about? Since you spoke of the thrust on the rural area, what does it mean? How is that a break? From you look, Pooja, you should not expect me to answer a question that you should ask the finance minister. So I will ignore the reference to the finance minister and, and respond to the question. The question, I don't think is are we doing this with the MGN, NREGA, are we doing that with the MGN? That may be a question, but it's a limited question. The question that we should ask 
is why do we need the MGNREGA after more than seven decades? We need the MGNREGA after more than seven decades because we have not introduced the necessary reforms in rural India in the agricultural sector. Because remember, MGNREGA is demand driven. It is the last recourse. It's a fallback option. The safety net. If other things are happening, then I will not need something like MGNREG. And I'm using that as an example. So if people have access to financial products, if they have access to physical infrastructure, if I have access to social infrastructure, if I have access to financial products, to technology, to marketing networks, to information, then I will not necessarily need that hand-holding support. So that is the message of empowerment, which is why I mentioned the rural sector interventions and this is what the FM must have also meant. However, there will be people who will still need to be subsidized. The question is who? Everyone in this country cannot be entitled to a subsidy. Everyone in this country cannot be entitled to everything free. So therefore, I need to target and unambiguously identify beneficiaries, which is the reason I mentioned the SECC. So yes, A, if I empower, I don't need to give doles. B, to the extent I need to give people certain things, if they are going to be given free, I need to identify who the beneficiaries are. Understood. Right, I think I have covered everything that I wanted to talk about. Is there anything you want to add? I was so far only looking at, you know, the IBC and, and the GST and the income tax, the corporate tax rate cuts and monetary policy framework as reforms, but this has broadened my scope quite a bit. No, I will add only this since you have now brought in IBC. Factor markets. I've mentioned labor, I've mentioned land. But there's also capital. An underlying principle of competition is, and this is what we studied in textbooks, Pooja, I, all of us, competition requires free entry and it requires free exit. So capital must also exit. It cannot be the case that there will be entry of capital but no exit of capital. It is for the first time with the IBC that promoters have been forced, errant promoters have been forced to exit. So I would say, I'm not saying IBC is perfect, but the IBC initiative, I think, is one of the most important initiatives that has been done since 1991. What Dr. Debroy said chimes with the observation of many analysts about the incompleteness of reforms. Why are reforms not completed and are reversed in many cases? Why don't politicians listen to sound economic advice? Well, politicians aim to win elections and who votes for reforms? Prime Minister Vajpayee's government and Prime Minister Rao's government were both voted out.
Reformers have little option but to wait and bide their time until serious crisis cracks open the political space to do reforms. The reformers' job has probably become even tougher than it was in 1991. The economic challenges are certainly more complex. There is once again increasing dissatisfaction with the pace and quality of change, just like it was in the decades preceding 1991. An example of how long a reform can take to get done is the Modi government's most significant reform initiator, the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Code. It came 20 years late, as both Dr. Debroy and Dr. Rakesh Mohan say, and it's already in the process of being diluted. Let me quote one of the key reformers behind this reform. Undoubtedly, some reversals around regulation and execution of the IBC have occurred, which underscores that it is fragile, writes former RBI governor Dr. Ajit Patel in his book. He goes on to caution that U-turns of the sort seen in 2019 and early 2020 could well mean that victory over crony capitalism will at best be short-lived and the limited progress so far could turn out to be a false dawn. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.